Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. As we welcome you along to the programme, we are going to be talking about migration on the programme uh, today and looking, I suppose, at our current immigration model. There was this roundtable discussion that was held this week and the results of that is showing that the the current model that we have in place is simply not working and more needs to be done. And it's kind of timely that we're doing that interview uh, today because all of the newspapers are picking up on the latest flashpoint, which is in a place called Inch in County. Clare and I think a lot of people hadn't even heard of uh, the townland of Inch in County Clare but it has become the latest flashpoint because there's protests going on there. They're, they're ongoing again this morning local people not happy with the fact that a group of international protection applicants are being housed in their area and what they're most concerned about was and the criticism that's been levelled at the government was failing to adequately communicate with local people in the area once again and how many times have we seen this around the country where suddenly people wake up or they discover late in the evening time that a bus is arriving asylum seekers are on the bus they've been moved into the area and in this particular area it's a very rural area so locals have concerns about it could be up to 69 men would be staying in this particular area and people are concerned what will they be doing you know they won't have they would need transport to get them in and out the nearest large town would be Ennis they certainly I think it's about 7-8 kilometres away from Ennis so they would need transport to get them in and out of Ennis and people are saying what are they going to be doing all day and others are feeling that it's just the the accommodation is simply not uh, suitable so officials in the department of the Taoiseach are still and I say this in inverted commas exploring how best to communicate with uh, local communities. I mean, it's just ridiculous at this stage that they're still exploring how best to communicate. They need to start communicating with local communities because I think if you start communicating, start telling people what's uh, going on, you can dispel a lot of the misinformation because that's what ha- that's what happens. A lot of misinformation gets out and suddenly everybody that's been moved into an area are being betrayed as all of them are criminals, all of them are rapists. How many times have we heard boats, busloads of uh, paedophiles and of course that is not the truth so you need to communicate and tell people what is going on and it's back. it was back in January of this year the Minister of State 
at the Department of Integration. That's uh, Joe O'Brien. He was asked to assist with community engagement and he was asked to put a team together because he seemingly has had a lot of experience in working within the community. But it's emerged now that his work has been stalled and he's quoted in the papers today as saying back in January when he took up the office he started initiating proposals based on recruitment of small teams, small local teams and then utilising existing community networks under his remit. So he was very much putting in place a plan. However, then he said officials at the Department of the Taoiseach came to him. They wanted more time to explore alternative models of engagement. Then he said, as far as he knows, that work of the Department of the Taoiseach is still ongoing. So... You know, they're still exploring. He was ready to roll out what he was tasked with doing and, and he was told, no, wait, we're going to look at another model and they're still looking at that other model. Now, the government are saying that they expect somewhere between 200 and 300 asylum seekers that have not been offered accommodation, that they're hoping that they'll be offered a place to stay within the next week. Now, the Sinn Féin leader, Mary Lou Macdonald, she's calling on the Integration Minister, Roderick O'Gorman, and the Housing Minister, Dara O'Brien to give statements and to take questions and answers in the doll over the matter. And then ahead of a Council of Europe meeting in Iceland, that's where the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar currently is, he was asked about what's going on at home when it comes to migrants and he said Roderick O'Gorman and his department would engage with the local community in Clare today. Uh, but he said the situation means that sometimes whatever accommodation is available will be used. But communicating with the Clare community today is a little bit too late when this, these buses arrived uh, during the week. Uh, he, the Leo Varadkar also said that he wasn't, he didn't think that the blockade, which is still on in Clare this morning, he felt that wasn't necessary. He says, what we need to do is engage with the community, but we're facing an unprecedented situation. Yes, that's exactly what you need to do. You need to engage with the community and you need to engage before the buses roll into a particular area. Now, he did point out that there are now nearly 100,000 people from all parts of the world. Now, about 70,000 of those, obviously, are Ukrainians. They've come to Ireland seeking refuge, seeking shelter. He says we have to provide for them whatever accommodation is available. He said it isn't always going to be perfect, but he said it's the best that we can do. Leo Varadkar said it's not possible, he says, to say well, when asylum seekers will no longer be forced to sleep on the street because the lack of state accommodation and we know what happened in Dublin at the weekend with asylum seekers sleeping on the streets. He says there has there the there has been though a significant slowdown in the numbers coming into Ireland but of course the government can't say for sure if there'll be another increase for some other reason and therein lies the, the problem. They never know from day to day how many asylum seekers or how many refugees from Ukraine. They never know from day to day, how many of them are going to arrive. But certainly there has been a slowdown in recent weeks. But that hasn't taken uh, from the fact that there's uh, over, I think, 450 asylum seekers with no accommodation at all. And then when they find accommodation that the department feel is suitable, they don't inform the local people. And what do the local people do? 
they get out and protest. So definitely the way we're working at the moment and the way we're trying to sort the problem is a system that really doesn't seem to be working properly. All this week we have teamed up with the biggest 90s and noughties disco. It's going to be held at the INEC in Killarney on the last Saturday in May and we have tickets for you plus three of your friends to be one on the programme today. We'll ask you a trivia question set in the 90s and the noughties and we'll ask you that a little bit later on on the programme. You'll have a chance then to text or WhatsApp your answer in, go into the draw and you could be winning a ticket for you and three of your friends to go to the INEC in Killarney on Saturday, May the 27th for what is being billed as the biggest 90s and noughties uh, disco. Uh, the artists, all of the, it'll be all of the chart songs from those two decades, everything from Five to DJ Alice to Mark McCabe and lots, lots more. You can find out about tickets, by the way, at biggestdisco.com. But tickets to be won free on the programme today. So do stay tuned for that. I mentioned when I was teeing up the programme with Ken in the last hour that I was out yesterday and I cut the grass. Somebody says, so Patricia, have you given up on no mow May? I unfortunately, well, I kind of, I have and I haven't. Okay, I did mow the grass. I mowed the front lawn yesterday, but I've left a section at the back that I'm leaving and I'm not going to mow. I promise you that for the month of May. And of course, this is an annual campaign that started a few years ago and it's asking all of us to put the lawnmower away for the month of May. And of course, it's all to do with helping our native uh, wildlife and in particular things like dandelions and clover because it seems they provide the best source of pollen and nectar for our very, very hungry bees at the moment. So it's a lovely thing to do and I should be ashamed of myself that I even cut the grass yesterday. But I do have a lot of dandelions out the back on the area that I've left for the bees and I promise you I will not be mowing uh, not one blade of grass until the 1st of June arrives out the back. So uh, and actually, if you've got a question to do with uh, gardening, are you are taking part in No Mow May? Good on you if you are. You're doing your bit for our native wildlife. And of course, gardening questions from the, for Peter Dowden. You can send those in throughout the morning. Peter will join us later on on the programme. Now, a primary school in County Wicklow has this week received a lot of media attention because it's introduced a voluntary code of practice for parents whose children go to the school to hold off purchasing a smartphone smartphone for their children until they reach secondary school. To discuss should more schools follow suit, I'm joined by Alex Cooney and Alex is CEO of Cyber Safe Kids. Good morning to you, Alex. Good morning. Um, and great to have you on the programme. Firstly, are you aware of any other schools who are running a similar initiative to the school in County Wicklow? I have heard of a couple of other examples uh, around about the, the country um, but I think it's a really encouraging thing to do for parents because it mainly because it, it encourages the conversation. And that's what we want to see, that more parents are having the conversation amongst themselves, that they're building a community of support, that they can uh, ask each other, you know, well, what are you thinking or when were you thinking? And, and, in, and it's the same with uh, access to apps and games as well. And of course, it stops that endless plea of everyone else in the class has one. Well, that's right. And certainly from our stats, by sixth class, uh, about 75% of the children do have their own smartphone. But we're seeing even as early as third class, you'll see, you know, you will even 30% of children in third class could have a smartphone because we survey this as we go through around the country and visiting classrooms. So we do have a bit of a sense of it. But I think what, what we'd really like to see is parents coming together and talking about it, because ideally 
it, it is better to hold off for as long as possible, really until you're ready uh, to take on the responsibility of, of overseeing your, your children's online use, but also until your child is ready for all that comes with that access, the, the use and access of, of the Internet. I think a lot of people listening will be shocked to hear you say children in third class. I mean, what, what are they? Ten, are they nine, ten-year-olds? Eight, eight, nine. Oh, that's I mean, and, and I've certainly heard young. of examples of younger as well. So it's just that's when we start going into the classroom. It's from third class up. And that's when we start surveying children. So we'll, we get a sense of it. But yeah, it is, it is young and there will always be a, a few children that do. But we should also include in this conversation smart, uh, smart, uh, other smart devices like tablets and games consoles because certainly actually among the 8, 9, 10-year-olds, they are much more popular. So you'll see more uh, ownership of those devices. And at the end of the day, they also have the same power. They can access the Internet. They can return lots of information as well to children. So we do still, as parents and carers, and educators have that same responsibility to be having these conversations at, um, both at home and in school and putting in place good good boundaries around use and access. And of course, we're right a smack bang in the middle, Alex, of uh, First Holy Communion season, which now used to be first class. It's now a second class uh, pupils make their First Holy Communion and it's kind of the first real time that the children at that age get a wad of, of money. Uh, there will be pressure now as to what children will buy with that money. And that's where parents need to be careful. Well, we've heard so many times that children are often using uh, their Holy Communion money to buy a tablet or a games console. So, you know, that is becoming the norm. And I think we need to challenge what is the norm, you know, and that's why these conversations and, and this interest actually in what the school in Wicklow is doing is really positive because I think we should be sort of questioning ourselves and saying, well, what is the best thing to do? What, what is the right thing to do here? Um, and, I, and, you know, at the end of the day, these are young children and these, these are very powerful devices. So we do need to really think about, um, you know, when they access them, how they access them, who's keeping an eye on them and all of those things because actually we need to prepare them and we need to prepare them well for that, for that online experience. You know, they're going to end up spending quite a lot of time online. You know, we can see that uh, across the board and certainly as adults, we also spend a lot of time online. So it's really important that they're prepared for it and they get ongoing support, especially in those earlier years when they're starting to uh, more independently uh, navigate through the online world. We need to ensure that they're getting the support and that we're having regular conversations with them. And that's your that's the real concern here, Alex, is for the young children. They're not aware of the dangers uh, that online poses. Yeah, I mean, there there are a, a number of things that we'd be concerned about. So these would include things like exposure to inappropriate content. Uh, I had a mother, a distressed mother on the phone just this morning talking about the fact that her 13-year-old had seen some really heinous content on Snapchat and, you know, what could she do and, and, you know, really distressed about it. And that's the problem. You know, a lot of uh, content is being shared in groups online. So it is important that parents do keep an eye, do encourage conversations uh, so that we, because you can't unsee something horrible that you've seen. And that that is really problematic. Um, so, you know, we do, it's inappropriate content, it's cyberbullying, it's children sharing too much personal information about themselves. There are, you know, increasing concerns around impacts on uh, mental health as well, uh, and grooming and extortion, which are the kind of, you know, really dark end of the spectrum. But, you know, that's not to say it's all negative and it's, you know, uh, all something we need to be worried about, but it is something we need to keep an eye on. We do need healthy balance. We need, do need parents engaged. And we need to put more pressure 
back on these companies providing these uh, social media services, these games, to take more responsibility for the children using their services. Because at the end of the day, these are adult-designed sites for adults. You know, they're not for ch- designed for children uh, largely. So they are, in, you know, inherently at risk in those, uh, in those sites. And what is your general advice to any parents listening, particularly the primary school children, children under the age of 12 who already have a smartphone? What, what's your general advice to them? That my advice would be to ensure that you're having regular conversations about what they're seeing and doing online, that there are clear rules in place at home around when they can use their device, where they can use their device. So, for example, we often hear children talking about, you know, going to bed with the device under their pillow or in their bedroom. And we'd really discourage that because once the child is in the bedroom with the door shut, the, 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 child, uh, the parent or carer is really excluded from what's going on there. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely need boundaries and, and, and you know, kind of good practice like, uh, you know, device-free mealtimes, try and sit down together once a day uh, without your devices present, you know, so that encouraging that conversation. Um, and it can include, inc- can include funny things you've seen online or, or the fun things you like to do online. It's not certainly not all negative, but equally just encouraging those conversations to happen. And the other thing I would say to parents is, Check the device, you know, especially when they're younger. You know, make that a, a, an agreement that you that you have in place when you give them the device, that you'll know the password and that you can check it. And you'll do so in a transparent way. But it is important that you're keeping an eye on the content that they're consuming, the stuff that's being recommended to them, uh, and, and also their, their friends list. Yeah, and what sort of messages that they're getting, because we know with online bullying and even bullying in the classroom and in the at once upon a time if bullying was going on in school it ended at the school gate but now children can be bringing that bullying home with them on their smartphones yeah it can be really pervasive and and that is certainly a problem and you know we do see a lot of bullying going on and, and children aren't always identifying what's happening as bullying because you know sometimes it's things like being left out of a group you know that there's a group created for an outing or a party or something and one child's not involved Um, You know, we've come across uh, incidents where a group was named, you know, We Hate and the name of the child. So let's say the child was called Susie, so they call the group We Hate Susie. Yeah, no, this this is a case that we had in a school. And, you know, and poor Susie was left out of the group, you know, so... It, there was there, or it could be mean messages, or it could be things that shared about you without your consent. You know, photograph, a video, something you didn't want shared. So there are different ways that that bullying can happen, but it is unfortunately happening. And we, again, we're talking to teachers about this, and we're seeing that you know about two thirds of teachers are dealing with bullying incidents in the classroom. So it is unfortunately more common than any of us would like. And then, of course, there's the whole problem of young people, children and young people just simply spending too much time online, be it on a smartphone or be it on a device. Well, so what we would say there is it's really focus on quality over quantity. So, you know, if they are online doing, you know, having a, a conversation with a, a close friend or, or a relative maybe, and, you know, it, or if they're watching a, a, an exercise video or dance, following a dance class or, you know, cooking, you know, there could be you know, fun, engaging, educational things that they're doing online. So certainly it's not like all time spent online is bad. There can be very diverse things that you're doing online. And, at the end, you know, we do live in a digital age and a digital mm. society. So, you know, that, that in order to fully participate, you, you kind of need to be online in lots of ways. But what we would say to parents is try to minimize the really passive sedentary use, you know, the endless scrolling, the endless gaming, 
the kinds of games where there isn't that kind of creative problem solving collaborative type approach that's just you know uh, endless you know shoot 'em up games or something it's it's really focusing on what they're doing then yes you do need to change it up and we need to think more about the healthy balance but there are lots of fun creative educational things we can be doing online so we'd encourage a focus especially for young kids on doing those things over uh, the more there's negative a, yeah there's uh, a lot of positives time. but even uh, we as parents need to and adults need to take a look at that endless scrolling on social media where an hour, two hours, and, you know, you've achieved nothing. I know, I know. And I, I, I think every parent and every adult I speak to would say the same. And, yeah. you know, I have to look at my own uh, behaviour too. It, But we have to remember, these apps, these games are designed to hold our attention for as long as possible, to encourage us to share as much as possible, uh, to engage, to participate as much as possible. And it is really, really difficult to fight against that. And I think we do, again, need to put onus back on those companies to be a lot more transparent about the techniques they're using and to rein it in, especially when it's uh, in, in relation to, to their child users, their child and the young people users. Well said. OK, we'll leave it there, Alex. Thank you for that. And uh, people can find out more on your website, Cyber Safe Kids. But thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you. Good morning to you. That is Alex Cooney, uh, CEO of Cyber Safe Kids. Text in saying, Patricia, I think there should be a 16 year old minimum limit on children owning their own smartphones. There's a magic to childhood which we can easily ruin the younger ones because of what they're accessing on the internet. Internet, And many of them are simply too young. I see things on my own Twitter and news feed says this texter that disturbs me and I'm in my 40s. It is too much. Let the children be young for as long as possible. 16 should be the minimum age. Would others agree? So rather than a voluntary code of practice by parents, it would be illegal to allow anyone under the age of 16 to actually own their own phone. Now, while far right activists may be constantly shouting that Ireland is full and now we need to close our borders to migrants, the reality is that migration in and out of Ireland is neither temporary nor is it a one-off event. Social Justice Ireland were involved in a round discussion on migration and they've put forward a number of recommendations and joining me is Claire Bennett of Social Justice Ireland. Good morning, or Colette Bennett. Good morning, good morning, Colette. Good morning, Patricia. How are you doing? I'm very well and you're very welcome uh, to the programme. Firstly, is there a lot of misinformation out there about migrants at the moment, do you believe? There's a huge amount of misinformation out there at the moment, Patricia. I mean, what we're seeing at the minute is there's been a foothold given to far right groups and people who would spread hate um, that that they're spreading complete lies about migrants. I mean, what we need to understand about the reasons people are coming here, they're coming here with nothing. They're coming here with the shirt off their back um, because they're fleeing persecution because of who they are or perhaps their sexuality. Um, they're fleeing from wars that they had no part in starting, that they are going to be conscripted to. They're fleeing from the impacts of, of climate change. And we need, on that note, we need to be very clear about how many people we're talking about. So every single year, there's over 
21 and a half million people are displaced from their homes because of the impact of climate change. We see a teeny, 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 teeny fraction of those coming here. And so we don't have a massive migrancy problem. What we have is a resourcing problem. We have been under-resourced and Social Justice Ireland, as you know, has been calling for well over a decade for an increase in resources, an increase in accommodation, particularly social housing. We want to see an increase in the health spend, particularly again around community-based healthcare, but also mental health services. We want an increase in education supports for educational disadvantage. So things specific to migration would be the types of things that we would have seen around COVID where there are increased class support. So in this case, it would be around things like psychological support for kids, but also for um, interpretive services and language services. We want to see an increase in childcare because there has been underfunding across the board, we are in crisis across all of those areas before we even saw the, the migrants come in. And now we have an influx of migrants who have particular needs. They're being essentially warehoused in areas that have experienced high levels of disadvantage. Those communities have not been listened to. They haven't had their, their fears addressed. And instead, far-right activists have come in and given them explanation for those fears. They're saying it's because of them that your area is under-resourced and they're spreading fear and hatred, particularly when it comes to concentrations of, of what's called military-aged men. These are men who are fleeing wars. They're fleeing persecution. They just want a safe space to be. You know, they're the same as anyone's son, anyone's brother, anyone's father. They just want to, to have somewhere to live. And well, it's, somewhere yeah, because it's funny. I heard one of the uh, migrants last weekend who, um, I mean, ran for their lives uh, when the their encampment was burnt out in, in Sandwich Street in Dublin. And when he was asked the next day, you know, how frightened was he? And he said, not as frightened I was from the country I've come from. I mean, that is incredible. Imagine how afraid you would be, first of all, to be left homeless on a street. You were moved from one area because it was too public. So you gathered together in a series of tents uh, down an alleyway in Dublin in a place that is completely unfamiliar to you. That then gets burnt out. Essentially, your home gets burnt out. And that is second to the fear that you felt when yeah, you were leaving yeah. your, your original home. I mean, how afraid must you have been to get here and to get into that position and then for that to happen? And yet we and we have another flashpoint going on this morning in Inch in County Clare. And that all seems to be down to lack of communication with the local people. That's right. I believe there was a, a, a kind of a town hall meeting held last Friday and the far right took over. And they spread the usual rubbish. They spread the usual fear mongering among residents. But there was no one there to actually combat that. And what we're seeing now is government scrambling to address all of this misinformation that's going out there. If they'd actually got ahead of it, if they got ahead of the messaging, if they'd said, listen, these are the, the number of people that's coming in. These are the resources, the additional resources um, that we're committing to it. What are your concerns? And we'll answer them. This wouldn't have got to the level that it is where we're seeing roads being blockaded and protests spreading absolute nonsense. And this argument that the uh, the unvet is all, all of them are unvetted people who are arriving and that they all have criminal pasts and they're paedophiles and they're here to rape the women. I mean, that's all mi misinformation. It's lies. There is absolutely no evidence whatsoever 
to suggest any of those things are true. In terms of the documentation, and it was it was NGOs involved in the, the refugee space that came out and said, many of them won't have documentation with them because they've had to destroy it to, in, or, in order to get out of the country that they're from. But when they go through the, the application process here, it's very clear that they are legitimate refugees, a legitimate asylum seekers. As for all of that hatred in terms of criminal pasts and what they might do to the women and children here, I mean, that's just founded on nothing but lies and racism. Um, because it's it's not founded at all. You know, we know from the statistics that the vast majority of certainly gender-based violence, sexual violence, is perpetrated by people the victim knows. It's not coming from migrants who are, are looking for somewhere safe haven to live. What about economic migrants, Colette? People and coming is, here for a, a better life. Absolutely. And there, do you know what? There are plenty of economic migrants coming here for a better life. We have them in pharmaceutical, in very high paying jobs. We have them, we did have them in tech, in very high paying jobs. And there wasn't this type of issue around them. In fact, you know, we've, we've seen in last, at the end of last year, there were 120,000 migrants came to, to Ireland in search of a better life, whether that's from Ukraine or whether that's just because they're taking up a better job elsewhere. Um, when that's the second highest number of migrants that we have seen. In 2007, there were over 150,000 people come here. There wasn't this type of protest. There weren't the 127 protests in the first five years of the or first five months of the year uh, that we've seen this year so far. Um, there wasn't these protests. There weren't the lies that are being spread at the moment. And the reason for that is we saw the migrants for what they were. They are a resource. We saw them for the skills that they brought. If you remember, 2007 was the height of the, the Celtic tiger boom. We were looking for people to build and they were coming here with skills. We now have forgotten all of that. We've also forgotten the fact that after 2008, we had plenty of emigrants, Irish migrants, moving to the likes of Canada and Australia, again, in search of a better life, not looking to flee persecution, not looking to, to flee wars or the impact of climate change, but actually just looking for somewhere they could get a job and somewhere decent to live. And look at our, our current health system. I mean, if we didn't have migrant workers in our health system, we already have huge waiting lists. Where would we be? Absolutely, we would be destroyed. And in fact, at a European level, there is talk at European Parliament to try and change the laws in terms of, of the, the work permits laws to bring in migrants, or to, I suppose to bring in workers in the care sector, so older people care and childcare, um, from outside the EU, because we just don't have the people. The Minister for Housing, Darrell O'Brien, said last week um, that he was looking at trying to bring in migrant workers to work the construction sector to try and get our, our construction, our house building back up to where it needs to be. Um, so we're actively on the one hand, we're actively encouraging, welcoming, incentivizing migrancy. And yet, on the other hand, we're not willing to see what people can bring just because of where they've come from and the fact that they came here with nothing. James wants to know what's your view on the current model where businesses are paid to house migrants? Are there people making a lot of money out of the current situation? 
Well, certainly in direct provision, we're seeing uh, like that, that that's a million euro industry every single year. Um, and all that is, is warehousing people and de-skilling them. Um, and, you know, it was very positive back in 2021 when we saw the white paper on the elimination of direct provision. Um, and there were very positive proposals put forward. And then obviously the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we saw a, a large influx of, of people coming here and that all went to one side. But that still exists. We still have those people, that are, those private enterprises that are p- being paid millions to house migrants on a, in a private for-profit model. That needs to be abolished. We need to look at this as a social model. We need to, one of the, the main points in our paper that was published on Monday is about forecasting, is about making appropriate and accurate population projections. At the moment, the only population projections we have are based on the kind of the birth rate and death rate and then the the economic migrancy. So what we see being brought in by foreign direct investment. We need to start accounting for things like the impact of climate change because that's going nowhere um, and look at, well, if we can forecast the number of migrants we're going to see, then we can plan our infrastructure, our housing, our healthcare, our public transport and all of our services around having a much more integrated whole society approach. And are you seeing any of that planning at the moment? We're not seeing that planning at the moment at all. And we are we are urging government. This is a matter of absolute urgency that this needs to be done because it isn't going to stop. We just need to be better at integrating it. OK, all right. We we'll leave it there. Uh, Kilesh, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for that. And thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. Thanks so much, Patricia. Good morning to you. That is Colette Bennett and Colette is with Social Justice uh, Ireland uh, on that roundtable discussion that was held and that paper that was published uh, this week. The, you know, the current model uh, certainly isn't uh, working and there's this whole issue of what's going on in County Clare. You know, people are, I can see a couple of texts coming in uh, with people saying, here we go again, lack of communication with the people of Clare. Would they have welcomed, would they have been more welcoming if they had known who the migrants that were coming in uh, were um, and I even saw that the the group there called the Clare into the Clare Immigration Support uh, Centre. That's their their state funded, and their role is to help refugees when they come into an area. And, and you know they're based all over the country. This is the group that's based uh, in Clare, uh, and they're set up, as I say, state funded in order to help the refugees when they arrive, you know, paperwork and everything. And if they're allowed to work, to help them integrate and and all of that. And it seems that the Clare group only only found out that the refugees had arrived after they had arrived. They weren't even told in advance there's a group coming. You're going to need to be prepared uh, to help them out. So, I mean, that's just communication, communication, communication. Ed said, morning, Patricia. Has anybody else noticed if you carefully go down through your electricity bill that the PSO levy is now paying a credit? Ed said on his recent electricity bill from Electric Ireland, PSO levy for March, April is a credit of 24 euros. 25 euro and 46 cent. Yeah, that got announced. I, I, I think this is maybe the first bill, even though it wasn't on the last bill as well. That got announced anyway by the government for, for years. The PSO levy worked the other way where we were paying towards it. But it's now been reversed and they're paying it back as a credit. Every little bit helps, uh, including that uh, PSO uh, levy. 0818 103 103. I can see some gardening questions coming in for Peter. Keep those coming. There's a lot of other 
other uh, commentary uh, coming in. Uh, I, I knew when I was speaking with uh, Colette Bennett, not everyone's going to agree with Colette and not everyone's going to agree with uh, migration, but uh, migration is a fact of life in this country. We've always had people coming into this country. We've always had people leaving this country. Obviously, we're in a very uh, unique position that we've never been in before because of the Ukrainians that are fleeing war. So we've got a huge number uh, coming here looking for protection, which is different to migrants who come here to work and they come here to work for a better uh, life. And particularly the one I cited is our health system. Where would we be without migrant workers? We can't turn our back on all migrants. And remember, all this week we are giving away tickets to for you and three of your friends to see the biggest 90s and noughties disco. It's at the INEC in Killarney. Tickets are available on biggesttickets.com and biggestdisco.com even. And it's on the Killarney... I only see in Killarney on Saturday the 27th of May and we'll be giving those tickets away later on on the programme on a trivia question uh, that is set in the 90s or in the noughties so do stay tuned for that. Now a lot of uh, commentary coming in about migrants and the number of migrants in this country and again we've another flashpoint going on this morning in County Clare. John in Mallow says on those who are arriving into this country I feel at this stage simply too many coming into Ireland but away from all of this the government are wrong they're wrong in the way they're handling it the, gov- the government should be making the communities aware of what is going on but they don't then what happens is a bus arrived nobody knows what's going on the locals start asking questions they don't get the answers to those questions then others get involved misinformation is spread and you end up with a situation like you have in County Clare all because of secrecy it is the government not communicating in the pe- with the local people that is what is wrong and I know I heard about there was a public meeting in County Clare saying there was the possibility of migrants uh, arriving it was held uh, I think it was last weekend and there was somebody from completely outside at the area. They were somebody from the far right got a hold of the microphone and seemingly was left to speak for f- way too long. And it was complete and utter misinformation. And there was nobody there to say what you're saying is uh, incorrect. And that then obviously put the fear of God into the local people or what happens if a bus arrives and of course what happens on Monday morning a bus arrives someone else says Patricia where did this term far right come from that's the government are saying it well far, the far right term has been there before the Irish government I don't think they uh, invented it anyway this text just says listening to Colette Bennett talking about the reasons that people uh, flee. She says if men are running away from war why not stay in their country to fight and build up their country again? We the Irish are not racist. We just want our country back. These people have no guard the vetting so of course they'll break the law. Look around the country. You've got people afraid to let their children out. If this woman, Colette Bennett, is all for these people coming in, she should put them into their her house and then our own Irish uh, people can get uh, a home Okay, there's so much you could you could pick apart uh, there. Um, but I suppose, yeah, the, the ultimate problem is we've got a housing situation in this country and that's just adding to it. And I think that's what a number of people uh, are saying, including Finbar in Mallow, who says, Patricia, over 100,000 extra people have arrived into this country in the last year since the war started in Ukraine. How many more people is Ireland going uh, to take? We have a country that's already in crisis, crisis when it comes to accessing services. I know 
you've heard this narrative many times before, but there are Irish people who are looking for accommodation. Some have been on waiting lists for the council for over 12 years and no one was ever forthcoming from the government to help out these people. That's why you've got so many Irish people up in arms at, at the moment. I heard of a lady in Cork. She has a child with autism and she has another child who has Down syndrome. She's a single mother with these two children and she now has noticed to quit in two weeks. There's no help coming for this lady by the government and the council services. That's why the country is so divided. Yeah, and you've, you've summed that up. It, it is. And it's unfortunate then when you get a very divided country like that, the misinformation then is allowed the, the people who are spreading misinformation they're allowed to spread it even further and that puts fear in people people are already angry because the, they see a lack of services and suddenly when they see people coming in they think they're taking from their services and the misinformation just goes on and on and on so yeah you've summed it up well uh, Fimber in that text and Michael in Castletown Bear says why is Minister O'Gorman allowed to be left in that portfolio is it not now blatantly obvious that he's not capable of handling it and yet again no communication with the local uh, people amongst many other cock-ups. It's a pure disgrace. Had it been any other minister, they'd have been screeching for his head on a plate. Put Simon Harris into that brief. I can guarantee you he will be able to talk the talk. That's from Michael. And on uh, tense, Marie says... While people are talking about what happened in Dublin and the burning out of the tents uh, last weekend, what about two years ago, says Marie? Tents were taken down along the quays here in Cork. It was done by the local council and others. Remember that? Yeah, they were removed, according to Marie, uh, because they of key works that were going on. There was health and safety uh, reasons. However, there was not as much roaring and shouting as there were. And of course, at that time, it was Irish people that were living in those tents. And I do, well, I do remember at the time there was a lot of people giving out about it. It was awful uh, what happened and they said it was health and safety. But I remember seeing some of those tents and saying in the middle of the night they were right on the side of the quay. I remember, I don't know how anyone wasn't drowned on the people living in those uh, tents. Uh, But yeah, I suppose two wrongs don't make a right either. Thanks for your uh, call. Marie. Uh, Dan says, Patricia, by my nature, my aim in life is to help anyone I can. Well done. But I do wonder when we can finally say that we cannot accommodate any more migrants. When do we say enough? We don't have any more room at the inn. Only last evening, Dan said he heard of a man interviewed who had spent some years in Germany before arriving in Clare. I'm assuming you're talking about one one of the asylum seekers. An influx of 60 men into an area where I live would, of course, cause fear and worry. Now there'd have to be huge question marks if somebody had been living in Germany and then decides to up sticks and seek asylum in Ireland. There would be huge question marks around that. But that, Dan, does it not go back to our asylum process and the way we process asylum seekers has been certainly not working properly, not just this year, but it hasn't been working properly for years. We've got people who have been living in direct provision accommodation for five, six, seven years and their case still hadn't been sorted out. So that whole system needs a complete and utter overhaul. And then someone else is 
questioning when Colette was talking about we're going to have climate change refugees. Now, she did say there's only a very tiny proportion of climate change refugees are coming to this country. But anyway, this listener says climate change refugees, according to this listener, is a joke. Only poor countries are affected, it seems, while wealthy countries who enjoy mass cheap labour seem to be immune from it. And claiming asylum because one is gay and could be harmed in their own country. Come on now. Could a Saudi who likes to have a drink claim asylum here as drinking is in his own country could lead him to uh, harm? I don't know if that's one of the criteria for seeking asylum, Uh, but an interesting point. Michael says, Patricia, I wonder, do a lot of people who are are protesting about the migrant situation realise that the health system in this country would crumble worse than it already is if we didn't have foreign staff. People really need to open their eyes and look at how many of these migrants contribute to our country. Our asylum system needs to be overhauled and fast-tracked. And by doing that, it would eliminate a lot of the scaremongering. Yeah, Michael, you are so spot on. That is the problem. It is our our asylum system is literally broken. It's not that it's not even working. It literally is broken and something needs uh, to be done about it. But and, and I do know on the group that came in to Clare when the Clare Immigration Support Centre went up to talk to them when they uh, and they found out after they arrived, but they went up to see how they could help them. Many of them had been in City West for nearly some of them were there for five months which means when they're in the country six months they're allowed to work and she said that was the first question all of these men were asking they want to work they want to you know and we have almost zero employment we have a lot of businesses who can't get workers and these you know these are men coming into an area who are uh, willing to work and we don't I mean I don't know their educational backgrounds but many of them could be highly educated as well You, you don't know until you get into the system with them and see can they contribute can they actually be contributing to the local community rather than as some people are seeing them as a threat but with lack of information and misinformation we simply won't know 0818 103 103 and then earlier we were talking about children and their phone use and smartphone use and this school this great school I think in County Wicklow and all nearly I think nearly 95% of the second class students certainly had signed up to it it's a code of practice where the parents are saying they will not buy their child a smart smartphone until they leave primary school and are heading into secondary school and it gets rid of the pressure on all of the other parents from the child coming home saying everyone else in the class has one I'm the only one I'm excluded because I don't have a mobile phone and that nagging that goes on that does and has led parents to buy a phone for a child when they didn't really want to do it but they felt the child was being excluded by being the only one in the class who didn't have a smartphone so if you have this voluntary code of practice that everybody signs into it only works if everybody signs into or if the majority sign into it none of the children will have phones so you're not going to have that type of pressure and when I was talking with Alex Cooney of CyberSafe uh, Kids you know it led on to the conversation of young people children and young people spending too much time online some of it can be very beneficial but some of it is just it's just it's a waste of time and the children are just getting sucked into playing games that are of no educational or creative benefit to them Michael says Trisha I work as a volunteer with young people and I can see at first hand how hard it it is to get them to simply put away the phone and to engage. They definitely have a real lack of social interactional skills and a huge need 
to learn ways to communicate and to engage without their devices. Uh, Michael, who volunteers and works with young people, so he's seeing it at the cold face, says it really is quite scary to see. And you would worry, wouldn't you, going forward in another uh, few years when those young people are ready to head out into the big bad world of work, how hard are they going to find it? You know, suddenly starting to learn you know, interpersonal skills and skills on how to communicate. You know, we sort of, we learn all those as we're growing up and certainly when we're teenagers. But if their head is constantly stuck in a device and they're only communicating with each other, you know, by messages, uh, they really are losing out on those social skills. Thank you for that, Michael. Continue your great work, by the way, volunteering with young people. 0818 103 103. C103 Jobs. EPS uh, Group in Mallow. They're looking for an administrator. Now, it's to join their minor contracts team. Strong computer literacy and you need to have excellent numeracy skills needed. You can send CVs to jobs at epswater.com or you can call them 022 312 00. Uh, an assistant driller is urgently required. It's for work in the North Cork area and a training will be provided. You need to call Al on 087-4456-567. Waiting staff are wanted for a new pub in the Goleen area. Email wildwestbar at yahoo.com. And a person wanted to train in servicing of fire extinguishers. It's in the Mill Street area. Email a CV and a cover letter, please, to Claire at MonsterFireAndSafety.com and you need to have your cover letter and CV in by Monday the 29th of May. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. You just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. While the war in Ukraine is now sadly into its second year, there are still many Irish people volunteering to help out in any way they can. And it seems some are even heading to Ukraine to help out, including my next guest, Barry Kenny. Now, a man I normally speak to in his role as communications manager with Irish Rail, but he joins me this morning for a very different uh, reason. Uh, good morning to you, Barry. Good morning, Patricia. And you're very welcome uh, to the programme. Now, you signed up to work with an organisation in Lviv in Ukraine called the Frontline Kitchen. I suppose, take me back, how did you hear about it and why did you decide to go? Um, I suppose I, I heard about it Look, the, the the whole issue of the Ukraine war is one that is I'm very interested in and probably you know quite exercised about uh, uh, since it began. Um, as a result, probably just my own you know kind of personal social media, uh, um, I, I I would follow a lot of accounts that that relate to it. And just at a point, I think probably back in February or so, uh, I saw that uh, there's a website called volunteeringukraine and saw through that that there was actually the opportunity uh, to go to uh, Ukraine to to help in a number of projects. Some of these are things like kind of reconstruction projects of, of particularly kind of towns and villages in the in the Kiev region uh, that were damaged uh, and indeed destroyed in some instances in the early months uh, of the full scale invasion. Uh, and then a more kind of you know permanent operation, which was Frontline Kitchen, who operated, as you say, in Lviv in in Western Ukraine. And that's an organization that's actually in place since 2014, when when the Russians first 
uh, occupied uh, parts of uh, Ukraine to essentially prevent, prepare uh, food uh, and food packs for uh, the military on, on the front lines. And obviously, since the full-scale invasion there, the need for that has uh, expanded hugely. And between the, the, the local women who started the organization uh, and, a, and a British man who, who went there not long after uh, the full-scale invasion to simply to see how he could help uh, Richard uh, Woodruff, um, he then, I suppose, kind of took the kind of social media aspect of things, took the fundraising aspect of things, and then kind of promoting the opportunity for international volunteers to go and help. Uh, and that was, I suppose, I, I made contact with him uh, and said, look, what do we need to do? And he said, just come and help whenever you can. Come and, on uh, over. So you took a week, you took a week's holidays uh, from work and you, you headed over to work in this kitchen preparing uh, food. Have you any cooking experience? Uh, I don't. Now, to be fair, you don't necessarily need it. We're not. Uh, we're, we're not a Michelin star operation. Um, we had. Uh, what they do is um, because obviously, you know, th this is food that has to last. Uh, it, you know, the, the transportation of it can be fraught if you're trying to get it to the front lines. Uh, so what it is 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 a lot of kind of soups, uh, porridges, also some kind of, you know, cakes and bread products. Uh, and what, what we do with them as well is prepare the veg is uh, so a lot of beetroot uh, uh, peeling and potato peeling and, and, and shredding of cabbage and, uh, and other products. Uh, we make things like borscht, uh, which is the uh, Ukrainian uh, soup, uh, other soups as well, kind of a mushroom based soup. And then it's dehydrated uh, on site in Lviv and, and, and packed into small packs. So each small pack, which would be about the size of a sugar bag, Actually, when you add water to it out on the front line, then it uh, makes 20 servings of uh, of the of the soup or, or whatever it may How be. How ingenious so, is that? Yeah, it's fantastic. And like, as I say, so you literally there, we're we're hauling sacks of food around and getting everything uh, prepared as say peeling, washing, uh, um, um, shredding and, and, and then they're prepared. They're, they're put into these kind of uh, fridges or to, to dehydrate uh, and then packed up. And then there's other volunteers who bring it around the country. So, um, uh, so I say it's not, we're not cooking kind of, you know, yeah. fine dining or anything like yeah, that. And then as you say, it's, it's, it's sent to the front, front line. And I watched, you've, you've put an excellent uh, video to, uh, together. We'll give pe people details of that, that at the end. It's uh, just a little half in our video it's, it's excellent well worth watching in true Irish fashion your first job was peeling spuds <laughs> and I'll be honest I was kind of happy with that too being perfectly honest you know what I mean I can tell you that the peeling a spud is far easier than peeling beetroot I, I, beetroot ended up being my nemesis <laughs> it was never something it was ever something I was particularly fond of but I it's I messy an awful it's, lot more yeah, it's, it is it and, is, and it is messy and your hands can get all stained and everything and it takes age, ages to, to get rid of it yeah. I'm a beetroot fan you see so I, yeah but <laughs> okay. not on the scale now that, that you were doing were there were there volunteers from all over Europe Barry? Uh, there were and indeed uh, the US and Canada as well and some while there was a lot of people like me who you know had a relatively short period of time uh, there were people there that had you know taken really quite extended sabbaticals from their normal life I, I think that's something I tend to come across with Americans they 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 tend to change their way of life probably a lot more frequently than we, we probably would in Europe. Uh, but there was people there that literally kind of, you know, three months, six months uh, over there. The only impediment to them was was kind of visa uh, issues and, uh, and and working every single day. And and indeed, some then would travel elsewhere in Ukraine uh, to to volunteer or look at other opportunities in the city in Lviv because there was, there was loads. It was, it, it's not just 
people out in the front. I mean, it's the entire society and community is working together to, to help uh, Ukraine succeed. So one older gentleman from the States, uh, for example, he'd do a couple of hours in the, in the kitchen and then he used to go to a, a, another site and help knit camouflage nets together, which had to go out. You have people fundraising for drones uh, for surveillance and for, for military use. You have people uh, fundraising for tourniquets, which are obviously critical uh, uh, for, for, for wounded uh, military as well. Uh, and the Ukrainian so, uh, and the Ukrainian people themselves helping out. I saw some of the university students were there when you were there. Yes, and, and you'll probably notice as well that a lot of the the students were 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 women because, of course, uh, and you see that starkly is uh, that obviously a lot of men are, are are gone to the front line and young men as well. Um, so uh, plus, I say the original kind of uh, women, and it's a. It's a kind of a, a phrase people might know. Babusia um, uh, is is how people describe older women. The grandmothers, uh, yeah. There, but but yeah, but it's not a it's 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 a it's a fond expression. Um, and uh, you know those women have been there not only since last February, but in in some cases since 2014 doing this. Uh, Goodness. The, the, the woman who, who who kind of was our boss, as it were, uh, in the kitchen. Uh, you know, her two kids, she can every day for, for seven hours and then finish to, to, to go and collect the kids and look after the kids. So there's an all volunteering. It's a, you know, it's, it's, Nobody's it's, getting paid. Uh, so no, you, they're, they're, you, they're I think the probably can. the most poignant part uh, for me of uh, your video was your walk around the cemetery. You, f- you found yeah. that yourself very tough. It was. It was very upsetting. Um, and uh, I suppose I was, look, I, when I was going, I was very keen, I suppose, to find if there was a way to, to I suppose, going to pay respects to, to the people that have lost their lives uh, fighting for Ukrainian freedom. And the main cemetery in Lviv, there's a, an entire new section, sadly, that is uh, dedicated to uh, the, 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 the military who died. Uh, very, uh, I suppose, going to be a decorated area with, with, with uh, the, the graves being marked with flags, with photos, with, uh, with with kind of personal mementos. And and because of that, because of the scale of it, because of the flags there, you're walking through it and before you know it, you're right beside somebody who's, who's mourning a loved one. And there was a, in particular, a moment uh, that affected me quite, quite a lot was the, uh, an older woman and uh, she was at, at the grave of her son and she oh. was just sobbing so hard and, you know, it's it's just the the reality of of what Ukraine is facing as a country just kind of that was encapsulated in that moment. It was very upsetting, but the the, the obviously the dedications that are there, you know, shows you you know these are people that that, that are want to to mark and record uh, the lives of their loved ones, and they do through the graves with very personal mementos, and even in the city centre then as well in Lviv, uh, if some ready to pop the question. The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN from the city uh, has been killed uh, on the fronts. Uh, there's a, a photo and a biography put up of them uh, in the city square when it happens. And sadly, unfortunately, those biographies are, are, are being updated every day. 
Yeah, they'll never be forgotten, but such a waste of of young yes. lives. I mean, because it is obviously the date of birth and the date that they died. So you can clearly see so, so many uh, young lives lost. The resilience of the Ukrainian people, Barry, is that was that very evident to you? Very. And, and a confidence as well. Uh, and it's, you know, that doesn't negate the fact that um, they're obviously facing, you know, huge stress. And when, when, when air raid sirens go off, they're not only thinking about themselves because Lviv is, 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 is relatively safe. And I suppose everything is, is, is relative uh, in terms of how Ukraine is living at the moment. Uh, but they are thinking as well of their, their, their loved ones that are, are, are closer to harm. Um, but they are completely determined that this was kind of you know full community um action because Lviv looks perfectly normal if you're walking around it you'd say this is a very elegant and very beautiful european city uh, where life and business is going on as normal but a lot of that life and business is in support of what's happening uh, is in support of of the the efforts to to resist the invasion and uh, you know and and there's a real belief that that Ukraine will prevail. They obviously want the support. They obviously want the help, and they hugely appreciate the help. You know, from the countries that are supplying them militarily, through to you know international volunteering. It is something you get an awful lot, and you kind of feel a little bit kind of embarrassed almost because you're going to go, "Well, you're you're living through this. You're you know the ones whose, whose family members are, are are you know prepared to make the ultimate sacrifice. You know, we're just here." You know, looking at <laughs> sending a few veg for for a little bit of time, but I think it's that that the the understanding that they have support uh, so widely in so many countries that that gives a lot of sucker uh, to them and uh, and helps in that in that strength and resilience. So yeah, it, and from that point of view, it, it was very rewarding. You know? Yeah, and and your your video clearly shows you know the gorgeous, stunning architecture, the culture, and the music. They're a very musical race, the Ukrainians. Cool. Completely. I, I, I suppose I arrived um, on a Saturday afternoon. It was a particularly nice day and I got the train, as it happens, uh, from the Polish border uh, into Lviv, lovely uh, central railway station too, and into this kind of central square then that had like just n- not just kind of a lot of music, but really quite inventive music as well uh, in terms of the busking a lot of kind of street performers and right up through the, the back streets of the old town people playing a violin there was a man standing on a uh, balcony playing uh, playing jazz uh, and, and all over the city at weekends people i suppose kind of trying to kind of provide a normal life again because there's kids living there and they need to, to have that there's a lot of internally displaced people from the rest of ukraine living in, in lviv and you know military that get a little bit of time away from the front as well. It's I think it helps probably then showing remind not that they need reminding, but it helps them to see that you know people are determined to maintain a Ukrainian way of life. Uh, uh, to, to, to support what they're doing too. Okay. And as you say, you did get on the train in true busman's holiday yes. style. Uh, were you impressed with the trains and how are the trains operating and? I was actually, yeah. No, they've got uh, um, actually the the train I was on, and of course these are the type of things I'd look for that maybe <laughs> others wouldn't. Uh, the uh, Hyundai Rotem, who who actually makes some of our trains, uh, uh, made theirs, and uh, uh, very nice, very comfortable uh, from the border, as I say, to Lviv. And one thing about the railway company there is the huge role that they have played, because we can remember uh, when the invasion full-scale invasion first started, the evacuation, uh, which obviously the railway played a a massive role in, uh, but also in terms of 
when places like Kherson have been liberated and other towns have been liberated, the railway has gone back in as quickly as it possibly can. It's been determined to keep its services going uh, right across uh, the, the, you know, the, the country where it's able to as much as possible. And actually after the military, uh, the railway is the industry that has seen more most deaths amongst its workforce because they're, they're going in and they're, mm. they're trying to restore services and sometimes the infrastructure has been targeted uh, and sometimes when they're trying to reopen it they, unfortunately areas are mined so there have actually been a few hundred uh, railway personnel that have been killed over the last uh, 15 months uh, but their determination is, is clear you know I mean I, 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 I wouldn't compa- compare it but we always kind of if there's bad weather we would always be determined let's, let's keep everything thing on the move here this brings it to a whole other level uh they're, they're determined to be part of it and things like when the ports issue was there uh transporting grain or other products out of the country so they're again it's an example of an industry that is determined to be part of uh the the, the resistance frankly okay and at the and just finally you were actually sorry to leave barry at the end of the week I was, and, and look, obviously, you know, uh, <laughs> um, uh, uh, my wife would be keen that I, that I come back and, uh, and all of that, but it's just, there's a real community and it's real camaraderie and, you know, because it's an issue that I'm particularly interested in myself, you know, and appreciate the vast majority of people, you know, are, are supportive of Ukraine, but uh, I, I may be borderline, I won't say I'm obsessed, but, I'm, you know, it, it is something that is very important to me and to meet so many people from around the world that, were of a similar uh, mind and that then kind of took the step to 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 go there as well it, it just made meant you felt like part of something a lot lot bigger and it is a lot bigger um and i'd, I'd certainly be keen to, to return uh, and if it's if that's required obviously my fervent and if hope the wife will let you yeah, exactly. I keep telling her that she'd love it, you know, that yeah. she'd love the city, whatever, and that, uh, you know, she could peel a few spuds as well. But uh, but the, uh, I mean, my, my fervent hope is that in very short order, I'd be able to go back to Ukraine and a Ukraine that's free. For a peace. holiday, for a holiday. Wouldn't yeah. that be terrific? Yeah. Barry, um, yeah. people can check out the full videos well worth uh, watching. It's on YouTube um, under Barry uh, Kenny. Listen, well done. Uh, and uh, thanks, thanks a million for taking to, and thanks for taking time out to talk to us. No, no, thank you. Good morning to you. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie. The Irish Farmers Association has said the practice of refusing to sell produce that does not meet cosmetic standards, a.k.a wonky fruit and wonky vegetables adds to costs because additional workers are needed to sort through them. Fine Gael Senator Tim Lombard is calling this practice out and uh, he joins me. Good morning to you Tim. Good morning Patricia. Do we just need to get over ourselves? A wonky looking carrot is still a carrot. Absolutely and I think look there's a huge issue here. 30% of our product doesn't even make it to the actual food chain regarding the supermarket shelf itself. And when you, when you do the research into it, it's absolutely amazing that that's 30% of our land, 30% of fertiliser, 30% of labour, all going to making sure this product is grown and then it's been discarded even before it actually gets to the food shelf itself. So we have a huge issue in, number one, dealing with the actual retailer. The retailer has a policy of certain dimensions, certain sizes, certain criteria, which is beyond belief. Deals fruit and veg aren't grown in the lab they're grown in farms all over cork and ireland so it makes no sense that you could have the logic that everything must be uniformed and the other issue is we must talk to the consumer 
like the consumer must have a, a knowledge of if a carrot is slightly twisted or not straight the twisted carrot is as good as a straight carrot and like it's only because it's grown in a certain way because maybe there's a stone in the soil that twisted as a grew. I'm not too sure. But that kind of scenario happens on a continuous basis. But we know if we grow our own fruit and veg, it's not all, some of it will come out perfect and some of it won't come out perfect looking. It doesn't mean we yeah. throw 30% of it into the bin. Absolutely. And if you were to grow potatoes tomorrow morning, you've every shape, size and dimension with the potatoes. So it's actually the fact of growing actual vegetables that they all don't fall under the criteria that they're, than what the supermarket is looking for. But the supermarket are a dividend this one too. Like I was talking to mushroom growers now who are getting roughly 220 kg for their actual product. But if they're slightly off size, they're only getting 60 cent a kg. Oh, that's a big difference. So it's a huge difference from the actual primary producer, which has unfortunately gone from nearly 1,200 primary producers in the 80s down to 200 only now in Ireland. Because of that, we just need to rethink about how we're actually dealing with our primary producer. And we need to have a really significant debate with the retailer, with the consumer, and with other organisations as well, like St. Vincent de Paul, that could really benefit from the so-called wonky fruit or wonky vegetables not actually getting to the food chain as well. Do we know, I mean, when you say 30% um, is, is too ugly for sale, do we know what happens to that 30%? Okay, some of it is discarded, some of it is used for animals. So some of it is literally chopped as, you know, a, as a product to actually feed animals itself. But still, it's a very expensive product to be given to animals to actually feed. So, like, financially, they're only trying to cover a portion of their actual costs itself. Some are just absolutely just binned, which is a shocking scenario. But it has to be the reality of how they actually do their daily job regarding growing fruit and veg. And I think in many ways, you know, these kind of this scenario about how our primary producers looked upon is becoming a huge issue. And like last week's the battle regarding the retailers and putting pressure on the retailers to you know drop their price. Like what I don't want to have happen here is that the retailers are going to drop their price by going straight to the primary producer and saying we need you to reduce your price by 10 percent. Like we've seen, unfortunately, over the last two decades prime producers are actually as a statistic falling if you put more pressure on them there's going to be less of them in the marketplace and that's not good for nobody uh, With food inflation Tim at an all time high now is the perfect time isn't it particularly to stop this practice Absolutely, like what this could do if we do this right we could have a scenario that we can put pressure on the retailer to allow wonky fruit and veg to be, come apart of the normal day routine it will then lower prices for the consumer because 30% of the actual product come back into the actual food chain. So the costs pertaining to the farmer at the moment is the actual, everything is put on the 70% that's going out. If you have 100% going out, then you're in a scenario that he or she will have the ability to actually produce it more efficiently, which then could have the knock-on implication that the consumer gets a better value. Mm. But we need to have the retailer playing the game here. The power we have is, the problem we have is that the retailer has literally a monopoly on the actual retail market. There's probably three to four major retailers control 60-70% of the retail market. And that purchasing power is having huge issues. Like there's a piece of legislation coming through about trying to control the retailer, which is welcomed. But this is about the actual general public itself. The general public need to be aware of the difference between a wonky piece of veg and a normal piece of veg. They're both the same thing. There's no difference between a crooked carrot and a straight carrot. They're both well able to they do the exact same thing.
And, you know, I was really shocked to hear the Irish Farmers Association say they actually have to pay workers to sort through them. I mean, that's just an additional cost. Completely. Like if you look at it, like 30% of land, 30% of fertiliser, 30% of labour, 30% of pesticides or whatever they use regarding the actual product, all go on the actual product to be literally disregarded. And that is absolutely mind-boggling when you think about it. Mm. And I think in many ways we've become a kind of slave to actually how the actual supermarkets have portrayed how the product should be presented in front of us. Literally put together three parsnips, one whatever, all in one tray, and you purchase that for whatever you're going to pay for it. I think the scenario about how we've fallen into that trap is huge. I think the consumer has literally been led by the actual marketing joints and how they actually can, you know, talk talk us into what we should be expecting. Like, what we really should be expecting is an appropriate way of, you pick out your actual fruit and veg, if it's twisted or it's straight, it doesn't matter, and that should be a part of the normal day routine. Like my mother would always say, she wouldn't buy carrots unless there was uh, clay in it. That, <laughs> that it doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, you know? yeah, like, yeah. And it's and, and the big bugbear of me, it's packed up in a plastic bag, and you've got this plastic that you have to then dispose of. And that's the huge issue as well when you look at how we're trying to, you know, make sure this is sustainable going forward. For many years, farming was all about traceability from food to fork all the way through. Now it's about sustainability to make sure a product's sustainable all the way through. I think the supermarkets have a big, big job here. Like, we're on about a sustainable product. We're on about a perfectly perfect product all the way through. But because they don't believe it suits a, f- a criteria of visual inspection, it's discarded. It's crazy. The it's crazy. are absolutely killing And us. are we losing vegetable growers in this country, uh, Tim? So, we actually had twelve, we had over twelve hundred vegetable growers back in the eighties. We're now down to less than two hundred commercial vegetable growers of a significant size that supply the actual food chain, and that is a, a really dangerous issue because when you have the market literally being polarised to that degree, the knock-on implication is that the control that the supermarkets have over that small level of growers is huge, and like the growers are under pressure, they've seen really no significant rise in prices. And like veg in particular has always been a loss leader. Like you go in the door, first thing you see is the veg because they want to attract you in the door. Like these vegetable growers are really struggling. And like they came here just a few weeks ago. And when I met them and saw what they're talking about, it was very obvious that this was nothing more than a marketing tool tool by the by the big multinational retailers to suppress the price, to control the narrative regarding veg. And because of that, who pays? The actual consumer pays more. And who suffers? The farmer oh, suffers the because they can't get it all. And the person in the middle makes the most. OK, Tim, we leave it there. Thank you for that. And uh, Thank thanks you. for joining us. And Mary says, Trish, on the subject of fruit and veg, I find the weird looking oranges actually taste much nicer than the so-called perfect ones. The customer should have the choice. Let me go to some of your commentary coming into the programme. A little bit of help and advice wanted by one of our listeners. Yesterday we were talking about we were looking for help for 
well, somebody with the pigeon in the garden. Today it's to do with the tadpoles. Hi, uh, Patricia. I'm just wondering, does anybody know, when do tadpoles grow their legs and take off? I have a load of them in a boggy piece of the garden. Now, the problem is the boggy piece of the garden is starting to dry up quickly with the fine weather. I ended up having to water the tadpoles and I'm watering them morning and evening at the moment to keep them alive. I thought they would have been well gone by now, but they're still swimming around in this boggy piece of the garden. Now, I'm of no use to you on this one because I have a fear of frogs. I know it's a weird thing to have a fear of, but I really do not. Not that I don't like frogs. I just kind of have a fear of them when I'm ever watching, you know, the I'm a Celebrity get me out of here. And they put people, you know, into boxes over their heads and they fill it up with frogs. That would be my worst living nightmare. Would not be able to cope. I would literally be shouting, get me out of here and get me out of here now. Not that I'm, I would be saying I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. I'd just be saying, get me out of here. So I know nothing about frogs. So tadpoles, how long does it take to grow their little legs so that they'll hop off and move somewhere else? If anyone knows about frogs and tadpoles and all of that, if you could inform us, please, so we can pass on the information to this listener. And I mentioned we had the pigeons yesterday and we had some great advice from Fran and Art Patrick who said don't panic the homing pigeon will eventually leave well somebody else has been on to us this morning from the Drumahan area to say we also have a tame pigeon he's been with us now or he or she for about three weeks he'll actually come into the house my grandchildren are feeding him he does have a red and blue tape on his leg so he is a homing pigeon who just hasn't found his way home well according to Fran leave him you're doing the right thing in feeding him but he should head away at some stage even though she said her one left after about three weeks so he may be due to fly the nest soon on the veg that we spoke about wonky veg versus having to get the perfect veg and what farmers and growers are going through. Sheila Market is raising a slightly different issue but it's to do with uh, fruit and veg but in particular fruit. She's, she's noticed that when she's in her supermarket now she, the example she's using is cabbage. She recently needed to buy a head of cabbage. She couldn't get over it. It was imported from Italy. She said surely lots of farmers and vegetable growers are growing cabbage in this country. Why are we, we importing cabbage from Italy? Do we go through that much cabbage that we don't have enough vegetable uh, growers? Can we not have our own Irish grown uh, cabbage? It makes no sense. Now, one of the reasons I'd have to do a bit of research on it, but I'm one of the reasons could be the point that Senator Tim Lombard made when we were talking about the wonky fruit and veg. And I asked him about vegetable and fruit growers and are we losing them? And he was saying, I think I think the figure he said in, I think it was 10 years, we had at one stage 1,200 vegetable growers and that's gone down to 200. So maybe we simply do not, we literally don't have enough people growing vegetables and therefore the supermarkets have no other choice. Sheila, if you want to get your cabbage, they have no other choice, but they have to go to Italy uh, to purchase it, which, uh, yeah, I have to say, doesn't make any sense. Thanks for questions there that are in for uh, Peter. And then on migration, immigration and that topic that's been discussed again today, Jonathan said the big problem here. He wants to concur with, it's already been mentioned by a number of our listeners, and this is down to the lack of information coming from the government. He said, if communities knew who was arriving in their area, then surely were decent people. People would get involved and they'd organise things, they'd put structures in place and they would help those moving into their area. But what happens is outsiders will come in, they'll hear what hap- what's happening, they'll start spreading misinformation and that then fuels fear amongst the local community. The government really need uh, to 
cop on on this one and get a handle on it and start informing local uh, people before placing refugees in their community. It would save a lot of bother, like the bother that's going on in Clare at the moment. It's all because of secrecy. And when you get secrecy, misinformation then has a tendency to spread. And that's what causes the fear. And then Denise in West Cork wants to respond to a listener who was ridiculing the fact that some migrants come to this country because they can't live as a gay uh, lesbian, bisexual in their own community because it's it's illegal. They can be jailed. They can be murdered. They can be put to death uh, for it. Uh, Denise said that she would advise that person who texted us to just simply go online and look at the amount of countries that still criminalise homosexuality. Denise said it's absolutely appalling. Thankfully, a majority of people in this country not only wanted it decriminalised, remember it was a criminal act in this country as well, but a huge proportion also voted for gay marriage. No matter where you live, if it was your son or your daughter, wouldn't you wish them a safe and a happy uh, life? Uh, Well said, uh, Denise. uh, 0818103103. Staying on migrants, Dan says, Patricia, we're being reminded constantly that we have immigrants world, that we have been immigrants worldwide in the past and we have. So many of us have gone to other countries and God knows we've got the illegal Irish living in the States as well. Anyway, we all worked hard wherever we went. What Dan wants to know is how many of the immigrants to Ireland in the past five years work here? Now he says, I don't mean the Ukrainians. He said, um, I deem them extremely needing of our protection, um, which I'm very glad to give says Dan, but he's talking about the other migrants. Okay, well I actually got some figures for you, uh, Dan. And these are the figures from the last 20 years. So they'll include the last five years that you're talking about as well. And the majority of migrant workers uh, and the majority of migrants who come into this country are of working age. They actually, would you believe, contribute more to the Irish economy in taxes and PRSI than they receive in public services and social welfare. And that's all based on the figures coming in from the revenue, you know, because they all get issued with their PPS and number. So they're able to see how much they're contributing every week, every month by way of taxes, how much they pay on PRSI. But then they also, the details are there of how much they take out of the system. Like, do they have children who go to school? Are they using hospitals? Do any of them end up out of work and need social welfare? Do any of them end up sick and need to claim, you know, social welfare when they're out sick? And they've actually found that they receive less in public services and social welfare and they contribute a huge amount to the economy. And it's one of those, you know, when you look at the Irish economy and when you hear the far right and uh, the people, you know, Ireland for the, uh, you know, Ireland for for the Irish. uh, And if they were to take it to the nth degree, you know, what fascism is all about, that you just want Irish people in whatever country, you just want your own people living there. If we were in the morning to decide, okay, that's the route, say we got a dictator in charge of the country and we decided we were going to go down and Ireland would only be for the Irish and all of the migrants had to leave, this country would literally crumble. We rely on them for workers but we don't only rely on them for workers, we rely on them for the taxes and the PRSI that they take in. And remember, we have an ageing population. We will always need, and certainly in the coming years, we are going to need migrant workers to come in here to work because we won't have enough workers. But we also are going to need those migrant workers to pay their taxes and to pay their PRSI so that the people, the older population who are retired and their state pensions, they're going to need to be paid for. So we definitely are going to need more more migrant workers than we probably have at the moment. So yes, they do 
um, they do work, Dan, and they do contribute more than they actually uh, take out. And then someone else, uh, and I, I've got the figures on this one as well. Somebody says, when the Ukrainian war first started, we were told it's going to be women and children that were coming into this country. But I see where I live, there's more men than women. OK, so I did a bit of a deep dive on how many Ukrainians have come into this country and what percentage are males versus females. Now, these are the figures up to the 1st of March and there has been a slowdown on Ukrainian refugees. So, you know, the numbers haven't gone very much higher. But up to the 1st of March of this year, the breakdown of males versus females of Ukrainian refugees, 34% male and 66% were female. But when you look at that 34% were male. Half of the male refugees were children under the age of 18. So you're talking about 17% uh, would have been men. And you know, when you hear this word, you know, fighting aged men, but they wouldn't all be fighting aged men because also included in that number of men who have arrived are older men. Some grandparents have come and older people have arrived. So I don't have the actual figure if it's the fighting aged men you're talking about. But I did see one Ukrainian woman, I read an article in the paper was during the year who had who had come to Ireland with her 21 year old son and you know somebody was saying surely he should have stayed uh, to fought and she said he is my only child she had already lost her husband and she said I'm not giving up my only child and she made her 21 year old son come with her and it struck me when you know when I read her piece um, and I'm thinking my God any of us as mothers, our fathers, if you were fleeing a desperate situation like what's going on in Ukraine, with, at, particularly in the early days with bombs going off all around you and people getting killed all around you and men going to the front line and getting killed and you had one child, one son, wouldn't you want to bring him? Wouldn't you want to get him out and keep him safe? And of course, there'll also be men of fighting age who would be conscientious objectors. Every war we've ever had, there's people who object to picking up a gun and uh, fighting. And then... God knows in the middle of some of the men that have come here, there are men who are scared as well and scared for their own lives and scared of dying. So you'll have that uh, as well. But that's the actual breakdown of the uh, figures that that listener was looking for. 34% were male, but half of those are children under the age of 18. And I don't think in any way that you're you're giving out about uh, children because you said you were were obviously are in favour of women and uh, children arriving. 0818-103-103. The Bialtina Festival, there was a text in earlier about the Bialtina Festival. Here it is. The 10th anniversary celebration dance of Mushra Platform in Ballingiri Village will be happening on next Sunday. That's the 21st of May. It's from half two in the afternoon until six. Music is by Lee, the Lee Sound and it'll be followed by C&M Sound. So there's no cover charge, but there will be a raffle with lots of great prizes. A great day is assured and all are welcomed to the 10th anniversary celebration dance of Mushra Platform Dancing uh, next Sunday. Enjoy. The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council, where communities and Businesses all across the county can get the support they need at corkcoco.ie. Mass in Rathclaren Cemetery is on in, uh, that's in Kilbritton Parish. That's on tonight at eight o'clock. And the Shambally Moor community will come together this evening at eight in the local community centre and it's to show their appreciation for their local postman, Dennis. Now, Dennis is retiring and the local community just want to wish him well for the future, which I think is a lovely, lovely thing to do. Enjoy your retirement, uh, Dennis, and it looks like you're really going to be missed by the Shambally Moor community. 
Rahan Community Alert they're holding their AGM tomorrow night Thursday at 8 o'clock that's in Rahan National School residents of the area are encouraged to attend what is going to be an important meeting the members of the Gardaí will be there along with Amwinter Natira. Blarney and District Historical Society they'll have an illustrated lecture tomorrow night it's Mother Jones the most dangerous woman in America tomorrow night at 8 it's in Skullmira gone small that's the Blarney Secondary School with the guest speaker Anne Toomey all are welcome and for non-members it's 4 euro and Cork and Kerry Community Healthcare are holding a Community Health and Wellbeing Day tomorrow. Now, it's from 10am tomorrow morning until 2 in the afternoon in Skull Harbour Hotel. You can enjoy some chair yoga and movement to music, along with a talk on diabetes and fall preventions and safety in the home. Admission is free, but you do need to register. Contact Lorna on 087 Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. And by the way, let me just quickly clarify something that I did. I sometimes, when, when information comes in front of me in text and, and I just read, I normally, generally speaking, look over it before I read it out. Sometimes I read it too quickly if there's a lot of text coming in and I made a mistake. My apologies to Rita and the rest of the gang. I was talking about the Mushra platform uh, dancing that's going on on Sunday and I said Balangiri and my apologies it's in Balangiri village so that's in Balangiri village not Balangiri and Rita's fearful that people might go to the wrong place so thank you for pointing that out Rita and my uh, apologies and actually if you send in the text again on Friday to me uh, I'll give it another shout out for you a listener wants to know does anybody know is there a local link bus stop in Castle at Castle Island Church the reason the listener wants to know is there's Master Padre Pio on the 20th of June and this listener lives in Bantir and would like to go to Castle Island Church that Mass from Padre Pio has no transport and would like to travel on the local link bus does anybody know if you could help us and we could pass on the information it would be it would be great someone else says to the people that are looking after pigeons be, be careful pigeons can be dangerous can a pigeon attack you I didn't know that hi Patricia in answer to the lady with the tadpoles and the problem that the listener has with the tadpoles in her garden a West Cork listener says tadpoles don't grow their legs and move on until early July oh in the middle of May and she and the problem is that our listeners the, the place where they are it's in the kind of a boggy area of the garden it's drying out and she's been watering it day and, and morning and night at the moment so early July so I don't know if you could move the tadpoles maybe scoop them all up and and I, I says she and she afraid of fogs. So I wouldn't even be able to pick up the tadpoles. But maybe that's something that you could do, and you could maybe move them on. I don't know. Oh eight one eight one zero three one zero three. And Jim is thinking about the refugees that were in Inch in County Clare yesterday, and uh, a number of them with their plastic bags. Many of them uh, left because they were so afraid of the. The protesters that were outside, even though God knows, I think the protesters that were in in Clare, I, I don't think there was any fear. But of course, when when you've already fled for your life, and then you come across people that you think are being antagonistic, people people left. Uh, Jim is wondering where did those refugees go uh, yesterday? He says, as far as he knows, about forty of them left, and three he says have subsequently returned. Now he says, I know that area of Clare, the Inch uh, area. Uh, it's only one way in and one way out, and there's no fo- footpath. Um, 
where did they go? Did a, did a private bus uh, maybe come for them? I don't know because they, they literally took off. So I don't know. I'll see if I can find out this afternoon because I've been on air all morning. But I'll, I'll see if I can find out, uh, Jim. But Jim was obviously knowing the area. He's a bit uh, fearful of what would have happened to them. Thank you for that, uh, Jim. 0818103103. Oh, the winner of our competition. I'm backing up on stuff here today. OK, the winner of the competition is uh, Colm Burke in McCroom. Well done, who correctly told us that it was Reese Witherspoon starred in Legally Blonde. Uh, well done to you, uh, Colm. You've won tickets for you and three of your friends to go to the biggest 90s and noughties disco at the INEC in Killarney on Saturday the 27th of uh, May. We'll do it again tomorrow and again on Friday. And of course, tickets can be purchased from biggestdisco.com and Searsha says Patricia please will you highlight that story that's making the papers today about the psychic who was in court for getting money from a vulnerable person uh, too many people are going to psychics and uh, believing everything that they say now listen I yeah I know the case you're talking about I, I was reading about it this morning and I heard it on the news as well um, my thing with psychics psychics can be great fun and fortune tellers can be great fun but you really need to take it all with, with a pinch of salt but this particular story is alarming and it does show that some of these are charlatans and they do prey on vulnerable people but this particular woman a 56 year old from Ballymun by the name of Deb Paget, she's been uh, cut out after she con- she convinced a man to give her €10,000 and how she convinced him she was doing a reading for him and she said oh your father's after coming through and your father says that you should give me €10,000 now it seems she'd been working as now she pleaded not guilty by the way but she went before a jury and the jury took a little over four hours uh, to find her uh, guilty it seems she had been working as a carer and as far as I know she was working as a carer for a neighbour and that's how this man uh, James Byrne and his sister because she also duped the sister out of €200 euro, even though she wasn't found guilty for that but she was found guilty for the €10,000 that poor old James handed over but anyway she, she was working as a carer for the neighbour and obviously they were friendly and in and out you know checking up on, on the neighbour so they got friendly with this woman she invited them into a reading he thought he was going along for a little bit of fortune telling and a little bit of fun and instead it turned into this psychic medium session and this woman started saying oh your father has come through and then she said your father says that you're to give me uh, 10,000 euro and you think how would anyone get duped like that but she he this James Byrne said this woman then started putting pressure on him and saying when are you going to give me the money and she started saying to him if you don't it'll be a sin and the devil will get you now I'm assuming this was a very vulnerable man and he ended up going to the bank he withdrew 10,000 euro in cash and he handed it over to her in a letter and then the, the sister claimed she handed over 20 euro for a similar thing that, that happened Eventually, I think the siblings started thinking about what had happened and they complained first to the woman's employer, the care service she was working for. But then they later went on to the, they later took it to the Gardaí. She then got questioned by the Gardaí. She is publicly known as a psychic medium uh, in the area. or That's what she claimed. And she said she can see beyond the veil. And she says she communicates with the dead. She said she had off, she's been offering this service for more than 40 years. She never charges. She denied that she ever did uh, the reading and she denied that she ever handed over uh, the money. But the jury didn't uh, believe her.
and um, I don't know uh, I don't know the outcome I haven't got the outcome of the case as to uh, what has happened but she has been fi- found guilty I don't know if there was any sentencing or not yesterday but it does show how vulnerable people and I think when people are grieving they can be really suscept- susceptible to people who claim that they are communicating with the dead so people do have to be very very careful 0818103103 let's turn our attention to all things gardening please <laughs> You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. C103 Gardening with the Mallow Home and Garden Festival May 26th to 28th at Cork Racecourse Mallow. It's too big to miss. And Peter Dowd of theirishgardener.com uh, joining me. Good afternoon to you, Peter. Good afternoon, Patricia. How are you? I'm well. How could you not be in good mood with the weather so glorious? Isn't it just gorgeous to see the blue sky and oh, it just it puts everybody in a good mood, I think, yeah. And I have to say, and I admitted it earlier and I got called out on it. I cut the grass yesterday. Now, we've got a very small amount of grass out the front. I left the back garden, but I cut the front one and somebody picked me up and said, what about no mow May? Are you a fan of the no mow May? Do you know, I, I am a fan of each to their own to a large degree, Trish. I don't think that we should, um, I know people will, will agree and disagree with me, but I don't think we should, any one of us should force our own opinions on others in the garden or anywhere else. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So it's obviously important. And I mean, you you know it because for the last 20 odd years, I've been talking about the importance of working with nature in the garden. But that's not to say that you, you can't mow your lawn and be still ecologically and environmentally sound because you can um, and in fact, it's, I think it's really more important that you don't mow the lawn in April um, because it, that's when the dandelions are in full bloom. There's more and more coming into flower now outside of the lawn to sustain wildlife. So um, I'm a fan of it, yes, but I absolutely wouldn't give out to you for cutting, <laughs> cutting your grass. I no, left, I left no. the back garden because that is full of dandelions and I, and I can see bees on it. So I did. So I'm, I'm half good and half not good. Anyway, each, <laughs> each to their own. OK, straight into questions. And yes. we sent you on some pictures uh, John Paul sent them on earlier to to you. First one is the is a question in from James in Charleville. He describes having six flower beds and they're made of box hedging. They're old flower beds. When is the correct time of the year to cut the hedging as he wants to plant summer bedding shortly? And for once, Trisha, I'm, I'm prepared. I looked at the photographs Great. in advance of our call today. So I saw them and they look fantastic. Those uh, real old fashioned kind of traditional flower bed shaped with box hedging and it's mature, really good, thick, mature box hedging. So the time to cut the box hedging, don't cut it now. You'll probably have your summer plants planted before you cut it because <clears throat> really it's with mature box, it's it's kind of July, August is when you prune it. I remember a gardener years and years ago when I was a small child telling me that they don't ever, and it was an English person, and it was, don't ever cut it. I think it was the Epsom Derby. I've no interest in horse racing, I'm afraid, so I could be wrong. But I'm sure they said the Epsom Derby. Whenever that happens, it's after that. So anyway, it's July, July, August. So if you cut it too early, you see, you're leaving the, the new growth quite vulnerable to, to sun scorch or to even to a late frost um, and also to box blight. So you, you do it a bit later in the season. July, August is when you would do that. Okay, I can tell you the Epsom Derby for this year is on the third of June. Oh well, it's more, well after the Epsom Derby, so this year, <laughs> July, I would say July. August. Maybe that's changed. Maybe they've they've changed yeah. the timing. Oh, it's in June anyway. Um, and there was also a picture sent in for listener this, uh, who sent in a picture of their magnolia uh, to check. Um, also, the best feed for it is it a seaweed feed? Is that the best? 
I would say so, yes. And I think that was related to a question we had last week, Trish, yeah, where she was, was saying yeah. that it had yeah, put on a few flowers, but but she wasn't overly impressed with it yet. Uh, it looks perfect. It looks fine to me. And I remember saying to her that it, without seeing the picture, it could be a question of patience, but maybe it is suffering. After looking at the picture, I mean, it's a good bit off. It's 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 absolute best. Yeah, it's several years off, but it is flowering. It's quite a few flowers for its size. It, it looks healthy if you want to give it a feed i would say that the the, the, the yeah, seaweed feed is good but actual seaweed composted seaweed or your own homemade compost to improve the soil around the base of the plant so add organic matter to the soil like a good uh, a good quality compost be it homemade or shop bought uh, and that should be um that should be enough for it and then Eileen in Balancholic was on to us. Uh, this is to do with her dwarf hydrangea. Now, she said it's been fine for about six or seven years. But last year, she reckons it was around the first or second week of July, the leaves started to go brown and eventually the leaves fell off. Uh, in the end, the flowers all died away uh, as well, just as the flowers were about to come out. Um, uh, they, they died off. Anyway, she's noticed this year, the leaf edges are drooping down and she's afraid the same thing is going to happen. Will the flowers Hours die off, and will it follow what happened last year? Do you think? I, I the the short answer is yes. I would think so. Um, it sounds to me it's an unusual it's unusual to see that, but it hydrangeas do get kind of a rot. Um, it's a fungal rot where you, you you can see it from time to time, where you kind of see the leaf going brown and particularly brown spots which which get bigger. And yes, the flowers do fall off. It's it's a fungal infection again, like so many of the pathogens in our garden, uh, caused by well, not caused by, but because of our damp and humid climate and moist, moist and warm. If you like, that's ideal conditions for for this fungal like fungal infection, like so many others. The, the best thing to do is at this stage even prune it quite hard now to prune off the, the wilting leaves, the stems with the wilting leaves, and drench. You don't need to prune it to ground level now or anything like that. You don't need to go that extreme, but but give it a general prune now. Uh, making sure that you're removing any of the drooping leaves. And then I would suggest a, a drench with copper sulfate mixed with water, which is my kind of catch-all for fungal infections, uh, and try and prevent it. It's try, try and prevent it getting a hold again as opposed to trying to cure it when it has it. You know, So prune yeah. it off, treat it, and again, a good feed. So maybe a good seaweed feed to drive on to, to, uh, to increase its immunity, you know. And an email in from Martin to Patricia at c103.ie. Hi, Peter. Is there any way to dissuade the local fat pigeons from pecking at and eating my lawn gold, which I recently spread on the lawn? The, the short answer to that is not that I know of. <laughs> yeah. But I'm surprised they're going at the lawn gold. The, the, like they wouldn't be going, I wouldn't have thought they should be going at the lawn gold. I would suggest it's more likely there's something in the soil underneath the lawn like the grubs of leather jackets and that, which would be commonly attacked by kind of crows and that in the ground. But normally much late, well, I suppose, yeah, normally later in the season, kind of August time, September even. Um, so unless there's another bug in the soil, that's a, I, I find it hard to believe they're, they're attracted to the lawn gold. I would say it's either a bug in the ground or it could be something like, and this might make more sense, if it's nest building time for them, they might actually be taking, they might be doing you a favour, they might be taking some of the moss out of the lawn for nest building um, but the short answer is no. I mean, you you could obviously try a scarecrow or something like that, but uh, they, they, before too long, they may end up just using that as a perch. Yeah, so, that's, um, that's wildlife I, for you. Yeah, hey, that's it. Uh, Mary from Gagan. Uh, Peter, is it too late to plant golden wonder potatoes? I suppose better late than never. So you, they, their main crop, where are we? Start, early May, middle of May. Middle of May. Um, 
you're you are getting a bit late. You are you late? Yes, there's no question. But do I think they will 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 give still give you a harvest this year? I do. They, I think they would. So I would plant them if you have them or if you can get them. Plant them. You'll be harvesting them quite late in the season, August, September, even later. Hi, and just stay on potatoes. Listeners wondering, can you get blight in May or would it be frost burn? My potato leaves are very weather looking. Weathered. I would say frost burn, definitely, yeah. Uh, and and there's, they're, they're quite, it's quite similar, the symptoms, but the frost burn will look more black than brown, if you know what I mean. Um, but I suppose the short answer, you probably could get blight in May, but it would be very unusual. It's normally much later in the season. I, I would say definitely it's frost burn, any, any damage now. Question about rhubarb. It's great to see people growing all their own fruit and veg. Uh, can, you pick, can you pick rhubarb this year after planting it last summer? And if so, when would you cut it? The, the 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 correct answer to that is no. You should leave it leave it without harvesting it this year. Don't eat it this year. But I, I often do in the first year. You could cut it now. Whenever it's kind of the thing. Whenever it looks ready to go, it's ready to go. You know. So you if if the stems are good, depends. Every people. Some people like the very young stems, and other people like it to get a bit older. Um, but if you think it's ready for you, then they absolutely harvest away. And nothing like stewed rhubarb or rhubarb tart. It, it, yes, I, I'm not its greatest not fan, fan, but I do no, like it. No, yes. no, I, I saw it actually in the supermarket the other day and said, oh, it's a rhubarb season. Uh, question for Peter. What is the best watering system for a large polytunnel? I, I can't actually give an answer to that really without without looking at exactly what you're trying to do. Like if you're growing up on shelves or if it's just the ground, like it'll be, and depending on what you're growing, it may be a sprinkler system, but equally it could be a soaker hose system where you're soaking the ground and not the foliage. Because a lot of the time, if you're, uh, particularly if you're growing tomatoes and things like that, if you're, if you're using a sprinkler system, the water getting on the leaves and on the fruit can nearly cause more damage than than what it, the opposite so you might be better off with things like that to use what's called a soaker hose uh, which is where the water just so- seeps out of the hose into the ground it's not um it's not sprinkling as such. So it kind of does depend what you're growing and what you want to do because there are other crops then that you would want to increase the humidity where a sprinkler system would be better. So it does depend really uh, on what you're doing. But you might be better off. There are, if you quick search online, we'll, we'll direct you to actual companies that do nothing but irrigation systems. So, so that might be time well spent. OK, question for a uh, question for Peter. I've got roses. Uh, some of them have already flowered, uh, but I've noticed a good bit of black spot on the leaves. Could I spray them now with Rose Clear? Now, you're not a fan of Rose Clear, sure you're not? I'm not. No, I'm not no. a fan of any garden chemicals. Far from it. So, no, I wouldn't. I would go back to the cultural control like we were talking about earlier on with the... Um, uh, with the hydrangea, to so go back to cultural control, which is prune off the infected growth, to so prune off any of the stems with with um, with the black spot, uh, and drench it with um, copper sulfate mixed with water. It's early for them to be getting black spot, but as they have it, prune it off, drench it with the, the copper sulfate, uh, give it a good food. You could go with a specialist rose food like the Goulding's rose food, or again just a good seaweed feed, just to 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 increase the overall plant vigor and to increase its to improve its immunity. Uh, a good organic plant food, much much better to do those two things and then put on some nasty chemicals. Uh, Mary wants to know at what stage should she start feeding her tomatoes? From now on, really. Yeah. As if they're, where are we? Middle of May, provided they're planted and they're, they're, you know, they're showing four or five pairs of leaves, I would be feeding from now on. OK, and somebody has two broom shrubs in the garden. One has grown very big and the base is now very woody with vegetation and flowers only on the top. Can, we, can I cut it down or will the base ever flower again? 
Most plants, Trish, uh, as I often say, they're like a fine wine. They get better with age, a bit, a bit like ourselves. But <laughs> there are some plants which, uh, which don't, I'm afraid. There are some plants which kind of have a lifespan in the garden uh, and broom is one of them. La- lavender is another and hebe is another they, where they give brilliant displays, but they just, they do, they kind of outgrow themselves and they get woody and no matter what you do nearly. Um, so it's better to trim them every year, even when you don't think they need it, just to keep them good and bushy. But if you don't, and, if, and even when you do, sometimes they do get this woody, uh, leggy appearance where the growth is all on top. And in answer to the question, if you cut that broom back hard now, it won't regenerate. No. So it's either live with it as it is and enjoy the bit of growth and the bit of flower on the periphery of the plant. Or, or my advice would nearly be to take it out and replace it. OK, um, that's where we wrap it up. Are you off to Chelsea? Is that this week? Off at the weekend. Off Can't wait, counting down the okay. seats. Off at the weekend. We yeah. will look forward to talking to you next week about it. Enjoy and have a lovely week. And you. Thanks, Trish. Thanks a million. That's uh, Peter Dowdle, uh, the Irishgardener.com. Hi, Patricia. Would you wish the best of luck, please, to Dylan Corkery from Lombardstown? He is. Sorry, that's gone up ahead of me. He is the captain of Team Ireland in the five-stage Ross Talton cycle race. The Ross starts today. Stage one from Lavender Burr. Stage two on Thursday. Tomorrow, Burr to Ennis. Stage three on Friday. Ennis to Castle Bar. Saturday is from Charlestown to Monaghan. Stage six is on Sunday, which is Monaghan to Black Rock in Dublin. Best wishes to Dylan and Team Ireland from all of his friends in Kilbrin, especially his nana and granddad, and that's Mary and John Joe uh, Corkery. Also, best of luck to Steve and Joan Rose. That's where I leave you for today. Nick Richards is with you for the afternoon. My thanks to John Paul McNamara for producing. And we're back with you tomorrow morning for Thursday's edition of the programme. Until then, I'm Patricia Messenger. Very good afternoon. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.